Hi listeners and welcome to the HVMN podcast. This is Dr. Brianna Stubbs. We're switching things up here this week and I'm going to be your host and give Jeff a little bit of time off. This week we're going to look at the topic of science communication. If you've happened to tune in to my research roundup series, you'll find perhaps it can get a bit science heavy at times and you may find it can be tough to follow along with the medical jargon and terms. And honestly, it can be challenging for me to break down these complicated topics and make them interesting and accessible for people who have different levels of background science knowledge. When we think about the art and science of communication, with science you may need to go even more towards the art to try and bridge the gap between research and public understanding, which has always been something of a pain point. With the inescapable rise of social media and the big uptick in numbers of scientists and influencers in health and performance who are taking to Twitter to share their thoughts and opinions, science communication has changed a lot and it will surely continue to evolve. I explore this hefty topic with Dr. Paige Jarrow, whose research focuses on the intersection of science, communication, journalism, and new media. Along with teaching at LSU, she works at Life Omic, a telemedicine app that we're going to touch on in this podcast. Paige also practices some of Team HVMN's favourite interventions, such as intermittent fasting and meditation. We chat about both the science of social media and science on social media. We'll give some beginners tips for reading research papers and then discuss some of the challenges that women face in academia. Hi Paige, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's really great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, so really looking forward to our conversation. Perhaps a really good place to start would be, how did you get into science? That's a good question. So I always loved science from when I was a little kid. Uh, Although actually one of the first things I wanted to be was a writer, which is kind of telling. So um, I said I was going to be a writer and then I grew up a little bit and decided I was going to be a doctor. (laughs) And then um, I... I, my dad always read science fiction books to us when we were kids. And then, you know, I started to love science fiction. I read all of Ray Bradbury's um, books. And so I kind of got into science through that fictional, you know, thinking about, I mean, the, really the science writing side of science, but um, ended up staying in, you know, loving biology and went to school for biological engineering, actually. And that's really how I got into science. So what uh, you were doing a doctoral research in bi- biomedical engineering, is that correct? What were you researching as part of your re- uh, doctoral st- studies? Yeah, so I start, actually did start a PhD in biomedical engineering, but back down and, and got a master's in it. And I was studying um, whether we could functionalize or put um, DNA-like drugs onto nanoparticles. So mm-hmm. a very... Uh, nano materials and nano drug type of research uh, to see if we could change gene expression through these kind of labeled nanoparticles that were that we put DNA drugs onto. So this is obviously like a super complicated topic. How if you sat down next to someone for a drink in the evening, how was your like thirty second elevator pitch? Could you could you like sum up that in like thirty seconds for us? And then did that was that part of what led you to wanting to be in science communication a little bit more? Sure. So for the science side, I would say one really cool thing I ended up working on was these silver nanoparticles. And silver is um, obviously a metal that if you imagine shining light on silver, it does special things with light, especially when there's a really, really small piece of it. So the special things that happen with light on a tiny silver sphere, we can use that to change drugs into being active or inactive. Um, So I was working on trying to put DNA molecules on, you know, DNA drugs onto these silver nanoparticles and hitting them with light in a special way that would do special things to the drugs. Wow. Yeah. So this kind of the elevator pitch on that. And then as far as what got me into science communication, I was um, working in a master's program, actually working in a PhD program in biomedical engineering And I missed having the big picture Mm -hmm. of I was working on tiny little pieces of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I really loved the big picture of thinking about why does this matter? And, you know, what's the next steps? And so in missing that, I decided I was going to start a science blog. And really, the rest is history. So I started a science blog with what was then Nature's Blogging Network. Um, and I, I was writing all about uh, the science of science fiction films. So <laughs> hearkening back to my original love of science and science fiction. What is like, what's something that you think our listeners might be interested in? Like one of the weirdest science fiction, real science um, that you found when you were blo- writing that blog? 
I, I know that I started with writing about Gattaca because that was really huh. cool. That's Adult. a cool movie. Yeah, it's really cool. And it has kind of, it's coming back to being something that we For think sure. about now with like CRISPR and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think that that and the 2009 Space Odyssey are probably like the most famous examples of kind of really good science in movies. Mm. Um, ended up being kind of predicting what would actually happen in science and tech. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like an interesting just to spend a few minutes. So for our listeners who might not have seen the movie Gattaca, it is about this kind of dystopian future where everyone's been like gene edited and there is this group of people that were not gene edited and they're sort of sort of inferior. And it's, so it's all about finding a match with good genes. And so as Paige said, now we're at a stage where we can gene edit with this technique called CRISPR. So do you think we'll ever get to this like dystopian future like Gattaca? Like, is there any other um, indicate, you know, how good is the CRISPR technology in comparison with what we saw in that movie? And especially with the recent CRISPR baby, right? Right. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that. So I don't know if I can say as far as where we are on that, you know, being able to do that. But I think Gattaca is a really cool movie because it goes to more than the science. It Mm. goes to the ethical and moral considerations that we have to have. And so I think that is very relevant today is, you know, deciding, you know, where, you know, what are our, you know, I guess guidelines and where are the moral boundaries for Mm. things like this. I guess so, and taking another like funny little step back, I think when I came into this conversation, I was thinking a lot about how as scientists, we can communicate out to people who don't do science. But then what you just said made me think like, scientists don't necessarily do a good job of integrating like social ethics like back into their research because this guy who recently did the first ever gene edited CRISPR babies he kind of stood up it was this big controversy and it maybe he was pushing the boundaries it didn't occur to him that people might not want this so how I mean I think we'll get into this more through the conversation but there's got to be a two-way street of communication between policymakers and scientists as well as scientists and policymakers and the general public as well. So it's, a, it's like a definitely a complicated thing to try and unpick. So, so when you moved, uh, you started your science communication program. What does studying science communication look like? Yeah, so I actually went into a program that was uh, a mass communication PhD. So I was pretty much just straight doing media and mass communication type of research and learning, but I applied it to science always. So of course, as a mass communication PhD, we had a bunch of classes where we always had to write blogs. We always had to, you know, write papers, you know, um, whether it was journalism, journalism class or a PR class. And I would always apply that to science through my own blog that I, that, you know, I was maintaining at the time. So, um, yeah, so I always studied, you know, how these, communication principles that I was learning about in communication theories, how could they apply to how to best communicate about science? Mm. And so do you think that um, nowadays so much of the science reporting is done by people who may or may not have a scientific background? What what do you think should be the prerequisites for being allowed to, to be a science journalist and deliver that kind of message out to the population? Yeah, I actually believe, I mean, kind of, being trained in mass communication and journalism, I think there's a lot of skills there that really, if you do it right and you're trained in the correct way, um, you should be able to write about anything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think a journal, any journalist, even without a science background, I don't think sci- having a science background is a requirement at all to write about science and communicate a- about it. Um, but I think you have to have you know, you have to want the truth and you have to search out evidence and data. Mm -hmm. Uh, So whether that's, you know, triangulating and talking to many different scientists, you know, relying on other experts, but in a way that, you know, you question and get, you know, different sources to give you input, Um, you know, with proper interviewing skills, I think you can actually, anyone can write about science. It's just being really, you know, wanting to get to the core of the truth of of what's happening. So you said a couple of interesting things that I'd like to kind of go into a bit more detail. The first thing is this idea of truth. And I wonder what your take is on how much nowadays people want to convey the truth or people want to get clicks or and people want to drive traffic to their articles. Because nowadays, every study seems to have some sensational kind of headline that's meant to make us, you know, click on this newspaper's 
uh, website and then we're seeing their avatar. You know, it's kind of like the attention market. So do you think that that's corrupting science communication and what can we do about that? I mean, there's a couple of things there. One is the idea that today's media landscape, I mean, people aren't necessarily paying for, I mean, some people are, but largely, you know, we're not paying for hard-hitting, you know, journalism. Mm. Um, We tend to expect it for free with considering the social media landscape today. And so it's very difficult, really, for newspapers today to go out and do hard-hitting science journalism because they don't have, they're not able to pay, you know, uh, highly trained, you know, in science journalists to go out there and do that reporting. Um, And so it tends to create, and they need to get views to, to make money, any kind of money for the newspaper. And so it turns into, it's kind of just what's created from the market. And so I think, you know, we all need to consider what, what we're paying for and um, that we, you know, we get what we pay for kind of thing when it comes to science journalism. I think that's why the landscape, you know, it's become that scientists are trying to fill a gap. You know, so now there's professional science communicators and there's science outreach personnel at universities and there's, you know, science faculty and science researchers are taking to social media and to blogs because they see a gap and they're wanting to fill it with, you know, more evidence-based information. Mm. What do you think are the dangers of scientists having social media presences? Because I see like myself that people say things on Twitter that they would never say or never get through a peer-reviewed kind of um, journal. And so there's almost like this higher level of like science chat that goes on in journals and then this like open conversation that the public can peer in on that happens on social media that that's completely different in tone and can sometimes be kind of scathing or nasty and it confusing what's your take in on the ideal way that scientists could use social media themselves yeah so uh, dominic broussard is a science communication researcher has, has a good point on some of those conversations that happen in public and for scientists always i mean the the best rule of thumb is for anyone on social media, including a scientist, to realize that it's not just your peers watching what you do, even if they're the only ones following you on Twitter. Um, that those tweets that you're writing about from your research or your methods, they actually have a much broader, I mean, anyone could potentially see them. So it's really important to, and what you're saying, whether it's to another scientist or not, to think about how that could be interpreted by people that aren't your primary audience. That's basically the... Um, key factor in like every social media crisis is not considering, you know, the potential audience of what you're saying instead of only thinking about the one person you think you're talking to or want to talk to. For our listeners who maybe not scientists themselves, but they're watching and all of these exchanges go backwards and forwards between all the big personalities that they hear on podcasts or that they see they publish research and they're watching, how do they unpick the difference between what people are saying on social media versus what's being said in the science and in the science literature? Yeah, I think that's really hard. And it's why it's so important, I think, for scientists to engage with the public. So kind of going back to the question we had about do scientists consider the ethics of what they're doing and you mentioned it or alluded to it but it's that active listening um so i'm really adamant about you know i believe that scientists who are on social media should be willing to engage with anyone who you know asks them a sincere question so mm-hmm. if there's not scientists following you and they ask a question you know i think scientists have an obligation to to, to listen and to engage in those conversations not just with their you know peers on social media because like you said, it's, you know, it's really hard when you're listening into a conversation between scientists on social media and not understanding the context of that. Mm. Uh, I just think it's important to, to kind of have a group conversation and to, to communicate those, whatever, whether if you're talking about your research and research that you're doing, maybe that hasn't been published yet to have it come with caveats and to, you know, to add some context around it, even if it takes a couple of different tweets so that, you know, a lay audience, someone who's not a scientist who's following you can kind of get the bigger picture. Mm. It's certainly interesting to watch how it's changed over the years, how people use social media and interesting to even reflect on how um, when Twitter changed the character limit. Now I still see scientists that have tweets. I I read through this thread the other day. There was, I think it was over 60, look, I didn't even read the whole thing. I was like, why are you not writing this on a blog? Why Twitter is not the medium for a 60, a 60 tweet thing. But I mean, so everyone's using it a little bit differently and trying to, to reach people. It definitely is challenging to try and respond to everyone that, that wants to wait 
weigh in on especially a controversial topic and thread like that and it does seem like like with the news with social media people try and provoke a reaction a little bit yeah um it almost so then you've got on the flip side the peer-reviewed literature which is you know much less accessible not only in terms of the fact that a lot of it's behind a paywall but also just the language and everything it's not not necessarily something that everyday people can engage with but it's it's sort of the more you know high and lofty method of science communication so i think it might be useful if you and i could just get into a little bit of the background of like peer review and like what happens when a scientist does an experiment and how does that get into a journal so so you've done your experiment you've got your results you've written a paper what happens next yeah so actually it kind of varies today i can give an example of you know we have a myself and some colleagues have a paper that um we're trying to get published right now and we recently, um, so we did the experiment, we wrote it up, we did kind of talk on social media about some of the general things we were finding and said, okay, we're, you know, we're going to submit this paper. Um, and then when we did submit it, um, we did submit to one journal, it came back rejected. Um, so then we were, we changed it a little bit and we actually put it on a preprint server. So mm. it's a repository or a, you know, somewhere where you can go and find papers before they've been peer reviewed. Um, Does that affect the chance of publication? Sorry to interrupt, because I know that sometimes you have to have it be exclusive almost. So most journals, most journals today will accept a preprint on um, some of the standard preprint servers, Um, but especially ones like Plus One, uh, uh, journals that are, have Creative Commons or more open access options, um, which is what we're going for. We want an open access journal. Um, so we did publish a preprint before it has been peer reviewed. Um, and then, and now we're still waiting for peer review at another journal. So it means you submit to the journal and you have other scientists basically in your field who are going to be contacted and, um, they're blinded. So we don't know who they are. They usually don't know who we are. And then they're going to look at our paper and evaluate it and, and point out any errors that they want us to fix and either accept it to the journal or reject it. And so what do you think, uh, what do you personally think of the peer review process and what, you know, if you've obviously spoken to a lot of different scientists in a lot of different fields, what's the general feeling about the this peer review process where other scientists look at other scientists work? Do you think that it, um, is it doing its job? Is it working? So it's not perfect. I mean, it's built on human system. It's not perfect, but I mean, it's really the best we have is getting a bunch of experts together and, and decide, you know, collectively deciding on whether a piece of research has been done correctly and not, and whether it kind of deserves to be published or not. Um, so I think it's super important, obviously. I don't think we can ever get away from peer review. I think that's a very, very, very important process to evaluating research that should be out there and be cited and be followed up on. Um, but whether how we're doing it is right or not, you know, I think there's a lot we could do to make it better. Uh, for one, scientists aren't paid or mm. or rewarded usually for doing peer review, meaning that I'm a scientist and I am asked to peer review papers. I'm not even a professor. I don't have yep. tenure. I don't have. I don't get any kind of reward for doing that. Yep. So there's some question of like, how can we reward scientists for at least taking the time to do a good peer review or not? Um, yeah. And then now there's models of open peer review. So you can, you know, there's even journals where you give your peer reviews and they're they go up like comments on a blog post, you know, so everyone can see them. And, you know, it's it's called open or public you know, peer review. Um, and so that's another model where the question is, OK, when the people, the 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 authors of the paper that you're reviewing, if they know who you are, if you know who each other are and your comments are appearing where everyone can see them, maybe you're a little bit, you know, maybe you take more time in developing your answers or, you know, maybe you're a little bit kinder. Um, and how you say things and give more constructive feedback. So, yeah, because I think I definitely agree with you that it's the best system um, to be working under right now. But there's definitely these flaws where you're doing it on the side. You may not be giving it enough time. You may not be an exact expert. And personally, sometimes I've been asked to review a paper. I'm they're using a technique that I'm not that familiar with, and I can't tell that easily if they've used the right technique or the right controls and that kind of thing so I think having a more open discussion and um, some accountability by having your name out there that's 
probably helpful but then also you get into this like kind of politics question about whether or not you know it's a competitor research group or whether or not you personally agree with their ideas or their findings so there's definitely the human the human factor is the challenge in you know what ideologically should be like quite a good system so you've got your paper published it's undergone peer review and it's in the journal now we so you know then other scientists can find it i mean there's almost two questions here. Firstly, how do you make sure that other scientists find it and read it and cite it? And like, what do you, as a scientist, how are you trying to like optimize the science reach of your paper? And then what about lay people? So is it then the time to get back to social media? Then should you be, you know, uh, reaching out to science journalists? How, and how does sometimes a finding a really, you know, especially when you look at some of these huge, huge clinical studies that show random associations between heart disease and some particular thing in the diet, and then it's the, this funny headline in the news the next day. How do we get from the science paper through to the message, both the scientists and then also to the general population? Yeah, so I think that some of those things blend together, right? So, I mean, uh, there's been research that shows that if a scientist talks to, once their paper's published, if they talk to a media professional about their research and they tweet about it, um, that, they, that that paper then gets cited more than doing either one of those things. For alone. sure. And so, you know, I think that's, it just tells you that it's not just the regular public who's on social media, scientists are on social media too. Um, we see other people's papers because they tweet about them. Um, and so social media is where we are all living. So if you sharing your research on social media or in a blog post or talking to media professionals about it, it could reach both sci- other scientists and non-scientists alike. Um, but I think there's things that we can do to make it more accessible. Um, I personally believe that there's not really any reason to put out um say a blog post or a lay abstract about your paper and not have it be at least accessible by scientists who aren't in your field. So there's a lot you can do to, you know, when, when your paper does come out to do the legwork and to, to write about the, communicate about that paper in very different mediums. Um, So you could write a blog post about it. And going back to your point of whether, you know, you write 50 tweets or a blog post. One of the things I tell researchers is, if you're worried that some piece of your research, some point, some finding could be taken out of context, that's a good reason to maybe do a blog post because in that, you know, you can write 500 words and yeah, people can read and stop reading, but it's, you could put it in con- in the context you want to put it in. And at least there's some control there versus if it's a separate tweet, like that tweet could be, you know, shared and then taken out of context um so i mean going back to what you were just saying about you know so you've other scientists are seeing science through social media and I'm a scientist on Twitter I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter and there's always you know paper titles and stuff I mean it's a little bit overwhelming um trying to figure out what's actually interesting and then trying to prioritize in terms of how much time you spend reading an article so I think is there a danger that, so I see someone who I kind of know and I follow and I kind of like generally what they do, they post a paper, I click on it, I read the abstract or the conclusions or something, and then I retweet it without having read the full paper. I'm then guilty of perpetuating like lower level of quality control. And I'm just assuming that because this scientist um, did the work or has shared the work and that it's been peer reviewed, that the quality is kind of high. But do you think that that bad science can get more airtime than it deserves because it's on social because it's well promoted on social media versus good science that may not have a professor or an investigator that's really like especially given now we're in like a global community a lot of good research is coming out outside of America or maybe even not in English as the first language maybe from China or and sometimes I don't know whether you found this you read a paper that's been written by a group in Asia and the English is really bad and that kind of masks your or like clouds your perception of how good the work is so how do you think we reconcile quality control with like mass information distribution I guess is the question here yeah I think that's hard again but um I mean we know and, and I'm talking to some researchers right now about doing a study on this. I mean, we know that, for example, if a research paper comes out, there's now journals are putting effort into doing lay, the, making the authors write a lay abstract. So mm. it's not just a scientific abstract, just like a little kind of accessible summary to go along with the paper. Some will even push authors to do a graphical abstract. Yeah, so I love those. Paper. 
Um, I believe now after paying an artist to do an infographic about one of the my papers that came out and how much more that paper got shared. Now, if I have a budget, I always incorporate some amount of money to, to pay like an artist to do an infographic when my study is finished, because mm-hmm. I know that that will help the paper get shared and get attention. Um, so definitely, I mean, investing in media and, you know, graphics, infographics, little videos, I mean, basically popular media around your research, that's going to make it go further. And yeah, that's going to make it go further, whether it's good science or not. Um, but, you know, at least you're getting it out there to where um, other people can start to evaluate it. Mm. So that's why it's, you know, really important for for scientists, you know, as we're, like you said, to, to, to reshare something when you haven't read it. Um, the best that we can do is make ourselves accountable to, you know, read the paper, like really make sure that when we're sharing things that we've kind of at least evaluated to where we think it's good science to share. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really interesting that thing you talked about with like source credibility. I mean, the person is everything. We follow journalists now. That's how we, why we follow bloggers who are scientists because we've come to trust that, well, if they wrote about it, they probably did their legwork to do a good job. I know if I read a, 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 a an article by Ed Young, it probably had a lot of research behind it. I don't think that's such a bad thing. I mean, source credibility, we can't get away from that. We're going to, you know, we evaluate the message by the messenger too. Mm, no, I think I think that's a really, really good point. So um, just going to change like slightly onto reading a science paper because I think that maybe you'd have some really good insights. So a lot of our listeners are not scientists, but maybe like interested in like going on PubMed and trying to dig through some of the science literature that we might be sharing out, that kind of thing. So you click on PubMed and you get the abstract of the paper and you manage somehow manage to navigate your way and find the full text of the paper. There's no paywall. You've got, you got your science paper. How would you advise someone who's not used to reading science papers to begin when they sit down with that science paper? Yeah, good question. So if you're not a scientist, I think that, um, you know, a way to easily read a paper, like the way I start is always by reading, try to get through the abstract, and then get through maybe the, you know, the first intro of the paper usually gives background on, on some of the concepts that were stated in the abstract. So the introduction to the science paper is usually the most accessible. And then sometimes I'll jump to the figures and the discussion. So oftentimes papers will have figures that you can kind of look and see, you know, is there any data you can start to parse apart there? And in reading the discussion, you'll get a, a holistic picture. If you're not a scientist and you, it can be sometimes very difficult to read the methods section of a paper, but mm-hmm. that's where, um, but it's important, even if you're not a scientist, there's things that could clue you in there about how much you can trust this paper. So if you look at the methods, um, you should see if this is a health-related paper. Was it done in mice? Was it done in humans? Mm-hmm. Like, is the you know animal model? Was it just in cells in the cell lines in a lab? So you can start to see at least uh, look for the methods for things you can understand that tell you you know what was this? Was this a clinical trial? Did it have a hundred patients in it or five patients in it? Was it done in mice or humans? And those can, things can tell you a lot about put context around you know whether you should be if it's a you know paper about keto, whether you should be going out and you know following what the paper said, or if it was done in an animal model and needs some more research. Yeah, one thing that I think. I mean, I find overwhelming and I'm sure that like um, just people who aren't even scientists must also find this overwhelming is how many science papers there are around. I mean, a topic like keto is like a perfect example because there's human studies with positive outcomes, animal studies with negative outcomes, cell, you know, like there's so many different models, so many different um, flavors of the diet that are used, so many different durations. And, and ultimately all of the, you know, you can, with some confirmation bias, you could just choose to look at all the positive results you could just choose to focus in on all the negative results. Um, it's ki- it's quite overwhelming. So the way I like to rationalize it to myself is think about like bricks in a wall and you kind of need to look and see how they're all stacking up is where's the balance of the evidence going. But do you have any tips on how to how to form an opinion? Well, I mean, and, and also as a scientist, it's it's almost dangerous to have like a fixed opinion. You've always got to be open to changing as the evidence changes. But how do you form a stance? Let's just say like your, your current thinking today is X on this topic based on quite a lot of confusing literature. How do you prioritize sources? And just real quick, I'm on the opinion issue. So 
this used to be, you know, a stance that journalists had that like, hey, we can totally remove bias and we can just say what's the facts and we can not have an opinion on what we're writing about. It's pretty much impossible. And scientists have opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to just acknowledge that and say, yes, we're humans and we have opinions and we feel passionate about some of the research that we're doing. But we acknowledge that and we can set that aside when it comes to looking at data and and. Um, if there's new data that comes to light, we're going to question our hypotheses and, you know, go back to the to the drawing board. Um, but, yeah, one thing that's really good to look for is reviews. So systematic reviews. Um, these are basically papers that someone has put together where they look at lots of different papers in a field and they kind of sum it up to this point. And those can be really helpful for a non-scientist because they're usually more accessibly written. And that way you get an idea of, OK, 20 papers in the past found this, you know, finding five found this, and you see, start to get maybe a path towards what's correct. Um, another thing I didn't mention, I don't know, I think it's free, but Altmetric has a little bookmark thing that you can put in your browser. And I love this because if you go to a science paper and you push this little button called Altmetric that you put in your like Google Chrome, it'll show you all the news articles about that paper mm. that have written. And one really good thing is to start browsing through all the headlines for those because they're usually like, let's say New York Times wrote something or The Atlantic wrote something about it. You can start to get like, you know, okay, there's other headlines here that are very different from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And start to like crack, you know, source a bunch of different kind of headlines around that. And you can get a good idea of whether this is a controversial topic or whether everyone kind of agrees with what's happening in the paper. Yeah, that's a really, really great tip and something I definitely advise everyone to do. And personally, I think Altmetric also shows, uh, I think it's Altmetric, also shows who's been tweeting about it. Yeah. And so you can often, so often I'll end up on there and I'll see, oh, really pro-keto scientist has tweeted about it and said this and really anti-keto scientist has tweeted about it and said that. So you can at least make sure that you read both people's comments and critiques on the article doesn't often help me get any closer to forming an opinion but um, (laughs) at least then you can sort of tap into make sure that you don't um isolate yourself in just like one school of thought around a paper so yeah i think that's a really really useful actionable tip that people could could try to try and like pass through science literature a bit more which is definitely challenging so um yeah we sort of ended up talking a little bit about keto and fasting um you're working on something really exciting that field can you tell us a little bit more about it yeah, so I recently became a director of science communication and social media for Lifeomic. It's a health software company that's building cloud cloud uh, tech solutions around precision medicine. So on one side, we're building um, really powerful platforms that can integrate all patient data into one place. So genomic data, electronic medical records, patient-acquired data so that researchers can basically do more precise and personalized medicine by um, putting all this data together and looking for trends. But as part of that, we also were building consumer-facing apps. So we're building apps that people can track various different health behaviors um, and share those that data with their researcher, with their physicians or with researchers. And one of the apps that we've built um, to kind of play around with making an app really, a health app really engaging is an intermittent fasting app called Life Fasting Tracker. Cool. So what does the app do? What does it look like? Yeah, the app is really blown up. Uh, it's, it's blown up. It's crazy how many, it, it became much more popular than we thought it would. Um, so it started pretty simple with basically, a, you know, a timer that people can track their fasting um, and track their mood, you know, uh, as they're fasting. But we also incorporated what we think is really important for healthy behaviors is we incorporated um, the social component. So there's a reason why people go to, you know, their social media outlets to have conversations with others because, um, you know, social connectedness is a really important part of our health. So we made our app social. So you can join your friends, you can create circles of people that you want to fast with. And that's been... um, a really key part of our app is that ability to fast with friends, to share, you know, how you're doing, to give advice, to, um, and, you know, to kind of share in this experience together. Wow, that's pretty cool. So how many users do you have right now on the that app? We have around 200,000 users of the Life Fasting Tracker, wow. um, which is only in, a, you know, a couple of months since it was launched. So it's really cool to see that. Um, 
And one thing that I'm doing as a science communicator that I'm really passionate about is building out the educational content in our app and making it very evidence-based. Mm-hmm. So citing scientific research studies, pulling in experts who you know have PhDs in these different areas of metabolism and cancer research, and having them write the content that goes into this health, this app that is being used by people that definitely aren't scientists. And so I think that's a really important and kind of innovative way that we're trying to get um, research out to people who are just interested in living healthier lives. Wow. So when people are using the app, you're able to update them with latest science research studies as they come out and really help them understand the benefits of what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So we have like really good open rates too. When we send people out, we send them little notifications when there's a new article in our learning library. And we're producing articles that are posted at lifeapps.io. Um, but it's all written by scientists and, you know, we cite, cite scientific research. So mm. we're, you know, really passionate about making that really rigorous information, but that's accessible. So it's definitely uh, a balance to play there. But, you know, I think that it's really helping people that um, they might have come to intermittent fasting through um, seeing a popular source that maybe wasn't so science-backed, mm. but really learning about like, okay, what's the science behind this? Like, mm. how does fasting impact my my metabolism and my health? I think that's a really interesting point. So nowadays on social media, there's a lot of people who profess, or kind of give health advice who aren't um, either scientists or clinicians, but they have like huge reach and huge following. And so they're affecting what people do day to day. How how important are they to the health of our nation? And how do you then uh, sort of start the re-education of people who come at it, at it from this like less scientific approach? Yeah, they are extremely important. So one of the things I do research on the side as well as about um, trust in scientists. And what's really interesting, you know, I think, and maybe not so much of a good thing is that scientists have, a reputation for being very competent or very, you know, we, we know that they're very smart, but we don't necessarily see them as extremely warm. Most people don't see them as extremely warm. It's really important when you think about a communicator, we trust communicators in our lives. So people that tell us messages, give us advice. We trust them because we think they're warm. So we think that they have cheer our values. We think they kind of have our back they understand what we're going through. Um, and unfortunately for most people, Scientists aren't those people, mm-hmm. um, but there are people in their community, their neighbors, their you know, local, maybe even local physicians, their like, health coaches that they've started following on social media, they, they trust those people. And so I think those people, you know, the, whether they share good or bad information makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I think maybe we should think about as scientists is, how, you know, how can we reach out to those people that are having a big reach? Like, for example, in the fasting community and the keto community, mm-hmm. just make sure we have open discussions with them about, you know, sharing with them the most updated sciences that, so that they can share with their followers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and coming from a stance of we really want to have a conversation with you, not that we're telling you you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- instead, really having conversations. Yes. Yeah, um it's a very interesting space like those two fields in particular I spent a lot of time thinking about it and recently we were uh we were making a response video because someone had posted a YouTube video calling fasting a hoax and he was going after it in kind of like quite a clickbaity kind of way and so we were trying to like bring a bit more like nuanced discussion in and around fasting I mean it's an interesting example going back to what I was saying about looking at bricks in a wall so what type of people do you think should be fasting? Like, where's what's your evidence-based stance on like who, what fasting, who is fasting really good for and who perhaps shouldn't be or where is there still like evidence kind of lacking? Um, you mentioned that you've been creating like a lot of content. What are you most kind of like bullish about in terms of intermittent fasting? Yeah, so I'm really new to the field of uh, kind of aging science and metabolism. So I definitely have relied on other experts that in interviews and and reading these scientific papers. And um, so I definitely don't have all the answers, but um, one of the things I point out to people is just to make sure they look at, uh, well, really like human trials. So there's plenty of animal research around intermittent fasting and it's really interesting, Um, but what has been done in clinical trials? 
Um, so even most recently, yeah, and sharing some articles around prolonged fasting um, on our social media outlets, we've had some people say, well, well, you know, we did the prolonged diet actually recently with Volchmongo's mm-hmm. uh, prolonged diet. And, you know, you it gives you some calories every day. Yeah. Um, and people will say, well, that's not fasting. You're eating something. But I kind of go back to, okay, in human clinical trials, if you look at any human trials, uh, you know, in human studies around fasting, they usually, and there's a reason for this because it's hard to get research participants to not eat for like anything for a period of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, almost all those studies incorporate some amount of calories per day. So alternate day fasting has been studied and it's usually under 500 calories a day. Um, but, you know, if we look at how intermittent fasting has been studied in trials, it usually is some amount of calories, you know, at some portion of the day. Um, and so I think it's just important to always go back to like, what have we, do we know about what works and what doesn't work in humans and what do we not know? Mm. Um, so we, you know, we know a lot about, uh, kind of alternate day fasting and what fasting can do for like lipid levels, um, and you know, some things like that, but there's other things where we have to you know, do experiments in animals to look at like underlying mechanisms of fasting. Mm. Um, so I think it's just really important to like, first of all, talk to a physician, second of all, consider the safety of what you're doing. Um, and, and that goes back to kind of like what feels good for you. Like, I think, I think people should be doing fasting in ways that make them feel better, certainly not making them feel kind of symptomatic in a negative way from fasting. For sure. And do you think now you've got this really uh, big user base in the app and you mentioned that you're going to be feeding that back into to doctor's notes and also into research, have you got any aspirations to run or kind of be part of clinical trials of fasting yourself? Not oh, you personally, yeah. but like you as the group in the app. Oh yeah, I think that uh, that's one thing we're super excited about. Uh, so one thing to just point out for people that are joining our app now, the Life Fasting Tracker, um, we're super, super strict about um, uh, personal health information and not sharing people's data. Um, so we're HIPAA compliant and high trust certified on our cloud platform side. So people's data is not shared if they don't uh, want it to be. Um, so right now we don't collect any data for research, but with our new app, Life Extend, that's coming very soon, people will be able to, when they join the app, um, they'll be able to say they want to be research participants. Mm-hmm. So they'll be able to say, yes, we want to share our data for research. And in that app, we're super excited about, we'll be tracking fasting too, um, mm-hmm. about asking people to participate in some research studies where we can do maybe some, you know, observational studies ourselves about when people fast, you know, what other health behaviors are changing, what outcomes are they reporting, um, their mood, you know, uh, simple things like weight, but also more complicated things like other health outcomes. Well, especially if you have a platform that integrates all of those things at once, it's like super powerful. One of the one of the studies that I enjoyed the reading the most over the last year or so is uh, an app that had like a uh, little graphic on it that showed uh, that where you would, all, all you did was input if you were eating something. And so they had like over the 24 hours, you could see everyone's eating incidences throughout the day. And that for the first part of the study, it was just like mark whenever you eat. So people were just sort of like, eating in the night eating really early in the morning like eating all over the place and then the researchers put like a little box on this graphic and they were like only eat when it's in this eating window so it was like a way of compressing people's eating windows and they I think they did some like health metrics before this stage looked at when people were eating confined their eating windows and then redid the health metrics and they could show really powerfully that people were pretty good at like getting their eating windows in this little box and it actually made some positive differences to their biomarkers so I think actually like telemedicine and figuring out ways to make it um, engaging could yeah. be really really powerful because it takes uh, it brings power into people's own hands and people can really take control of their health yeah that's one of the things we're super passionate about is giving that and it kind of goes back to health and science communication is unfortunately i think it's super unfortunate that a lot of people that participate in research and clinical trials never get the results communicated back to them. Like yeah. they participate and then it's over and maybe they got some beneficial, um, you know, health, uh, maybe they benefited in some way in terms of their health from participating in the research, but otherwise it doesn't come back full circle. Mm. And so that's one thing we'll definitely be doing is, you know, anyone who does research with us, you know, and I'll personally be helping, you know, I would love to help train 
scientists who are working with us in science communication um, and helping them, you know, close that loop and communicate back with the patients, sharing, you know, graphs of how they're doing, communicating results of the overall trial when it's finished, you know, that, like you said, that piece of like fitting your, your eating window into this little box. I mean, that's a very visual thing. Anything you can give back to the person who's using this app that's engaging and, and visual too can help them, you know, better understand what you want from them and what, how they can better be helping themselves through their health and yeah. then you know the outcomes of some kind of research they participated in. I think a lot of these things probably feed into why people don't trust scientists because reflecting on like when I've run experiments myself and I mean I didn't run like big clinical trials or anything like that um, but you're sort of pushed for time and then also once you finish the research the analysis and the write-up and the publication all of this like delays things and then also there's ethics around you know whether or not you should be keep keeping people's contact details after the study so I mean I guess in an ideal world like you're saying you would finish the study and you would have a mail list you know private mail list so people can't see one another but obviously you just like send out the result the paper if it was published but maybe not all research is published as as well so there's sort of problems there about really managing to close that loop up and so people are signing up for clinical studies may or may not get the results at the end and then also during the study there has to be this you have to depersonalize things a little bit people sometimes they're blinded to the well you know more often than not and for a good good clinical trials people are blinded to the intervention that they're yeah. receiving so you can see why people don't trust scientists because they're like, you know, here, take this and I'm not going to tell you, you know, there's, it's all very clin clinical, um, not, and that's the way that it's mandated for the ethics board. So, I mean, do you think, how do you think that um, we could work within good ethical guidelines for doing these experiments, but engage the people who are doing the experiments better? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, obviously the, the safety of the you know, research participants and their health comes first and then and person and, you know, um, securing their personal data. But I think there's, I personally think there's great ways that we could in no way, you know, uh, move into the space of like, um, you know, problematic issues with ethics and with people's, uh, you know, contact information, but still close that loop. So even for example, I mean, if someone um, participates in a research study and, of some, like maybe some of my research studies in social sciences, it's a bit easier, but you can maybe even have a newsletter at the end where they can sign up and it's a totally different contact form and they can just, you know, sign up for some kind of communications to come at the end of the study. Um, it's really nice in a platform like what we have at Lifeomic where we have an app connected to um, people's uh, health information in a very secure network is that we can, you know, very securely, um, push health recommendations and information back to them at the end of a study um, while being constrained and being well within, you know, ethics board requirements and that kind of stuff. But so I think there's plenty of ways where scientists, you know, whether it's like we have a blog to talk about, you know, what happens at the end of a study and we make sure people like they, they could sign up to follow it during while they're signing up for the research study. I mean, I think there's plenty of ways where if we think about, you have to think about the communication up front. That's mm -hmm. the problem. So a lot of scientists and researchers, they're thinking about doing their research. And at the end, when it's published, they're like, okay, now what do we do to communicate about this? I think that's the problem is like, can you, we need to think about the communication part before you even do the research, like upfront, how are we going to close the loop and have this really help people? Mm, yes, a challenge. And I, I hope, I think that like the younger generation of scientists are starting to become more attuned to, because I mean, we grew up in this era where social media is now like just the way that everyone communicates and the way that everyone lives, like you said at the very start. So maybe we'll start, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be like hits and misses in like how this goes, but hopefully... Uh, it'll become increasingly a positive, a force for good in science communication. And sort of like on that note, I'd love to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the Scientists Who Selfie campaign oh, yeah. that you run. Um, I saw that. It looks really cool. Tell, tell us about what sparked you to do it and, and what the outcomes were. Yeah, so that was a really fun, super fun study because I kind of came at it from I just wanted to do some research that involved Instagram because I did my whole <laughs> <laughs> dissertation around science blogging. So how science bloggers, like what their practices are. And I talked to a bunch of science bloggers. I was like, that's cool. I know tons about science blogging, but like, I want to, you know, research a really cool new medium. Let's do Instagram. Um, and so I thought about like, what could I research that involves Instagram? 
And at the time, at that time when I was kind of thinking about what can I do with Instagram for a social science study, I saw a, um, a video where Susan Fisk was talking about some of her research where she studies, she studies stereotypes very classically, but she had a particular study where she was looking at stereotypes of scientists. And it was that stereotype I talked to you about, about scientists being perceived as very competent. So very intellectual, you know, smart, capable of achieving their goals, but not necessarily very warm. That means not very friendly, not necessarily being seen as extremely moral, um, uh, not seen as having your back, you know, sharing your values. Um, and so I was like, that's really interesting. Thinking about Instagram and thinking about like visualizing science, you know, what if you saw a friendly face on a scientist? I mean, we don't normally see scientists, you know, faces. We don't see them in the lab, you know, being human beings. So could putting a very friendly face on science make people, you know, change their stereotypes about who a scientist is, um, what a scientist does and the fact that a scientist you know, might look like you and share share your interests and your values. So it's really what we did with the Scientist Who Selfie project. We decided we were going to do an experiment and definitively look at people's perceptions of if they saw scientists uh, selfieing or their portraits on Instagram versus if they just saw the scientist sharing a picture of a microscope or a picture in their lab. Um, and how that changed people's perceptions of scientists. Hmm. So did you have to like consent people to take part in this research and that kind of thing? Was it like a yeah. full blown? <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, we did an experiment where it was very co confined in the lab and then on an online survey experiment. Um, so we got real scientists to help us take pictures and contribute to, um, to our experimental stimulus. Um, and then we did the classic, you know, um, IRB or institutional review board, like ethics committees to, to give us research participants. But yeah, so we, then we were just basically having pe bringing people into a lab or having, giving them a survey online and saying, Hey, like, look at these pictures of scientists that is either, you know, pictures of just science itself, like microscopes and stuff or pictures where you can see the scientist's face yeah. and then tell us, you know, what do you think about scientists in general? Do you think these people look very warm and competent? Like, what are your perceptions of these people? Wow. And so uh, what were the results? Did it did it make a difference? Yeah. So um, both in the lab study and in a not the online survey experiment, um, where we actually had a U.S. representative uh, sample of people looking at these pictures, um, which is uh, pretty good for social science research because we had some good funding. And we found that when people saw pictures of scientists' faces, and, and so the pictures were very controlled, where like, let's say it's a microscope, and then you would see the part, you know, that it was like the same exact picture, but the scientist was now like, you could see their face in the picture. Um, and when people did see those self-portraits of scientists, they not only thought those people were more warm, more friendly, and evaluated them more positively, but it also transferred to their stereotypes of scientists in general. So when we asked them, like, what do you think about, you know, what do you think? Are scientists generally warm? Are they generally competent? And we asked a bunch of different words associated with scientists. And people, you know, they're, they're, these kind of positive views of the scientists in these portraits um, made people change their stereotypes about scientists. So I wonder whether alongside the graphical abstract, people should also, you should also have to put a selfie in every yeah. time that you publish a science article. That would make it... Well, I don't know. I feel like I feel like that would get me past the first page of a paper, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> draw yeah, fa draw yeah. faces on the ones you don't like. <laughs> I didn't think about that. We should add in selfies to yeah. the visual abstract. Well, I know that I saw a paper recently where um, one of the investigators, I don't know, I can't remember which journal it was, but they had profiled one of the scientists because I think he was like a young investigator. He'd won some award. and But as part of the publication, it was like a little mini profile picture and a few sentences about one of the researchers. And it definitely... I don't know, it just humanized the paper. I don't know, just so it was made a little bit more accessible. So, and if that's for me as a scientist, I feel like that would be quite a good bridge for to continue to break down the walls between, you know, the people sitting in the research orgs and the people kind of at home on the internet trying to trying to learn things for themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. I would think ideally, I mean, ideally that that humanizing would help people think, hey, I'll reach out to the scientists, I'll ask them a question, like I'll engage in conversation and tell them what I think about their research and start to close that loop of like public participation in research, mm. um, you know, and then help people see, especially I think when the scientist shares their motivations, like, hey, I'm doing this research because, I mean, I care about humanity. I want to help people live healthier. And I mean, like, I think those sharing our motivations for what we do, I think is super important. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the challenge is though, 
how do you integrate like all of the different questions, you know, and I, I agree with you that I want people to be able to reach out and ask questions, but just like finding a sort of scientist, and I don't know how it is always here in the US, but in the UK, you might be running research, teaching, you might be doing like, a, you know, a million different things and rev peer review as well, you know, doing your community service there and then trying to find time to respond to everyone's questions as well might be kind of challenging and opinions. So I wonder if there'd be a way to integrate uh, and, you know, I don't know, maybe if there was almost a service for scientists where it could integrate all the questions that you get on Twitter and you could do something that we do here as we put out a call sometimes for like, ask me any anything and we'll pick the top sort of five of those so maybe maybe sort of trying to force people to communicate in like a bit more of a set time window might make it something because otherwise I think scientists can be kind of overwhelmed by all of the things that they're trying to do especially when you're going like grant research grant to research grant there's not always a lot of stability and so you probably need to figure out ways to build in communication in ways that are doable for you as a scientist as well. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a super good idea. But yeah, I'm not definitely not blind to this problem that scientists have way too much to do and we're asking them to do just more and more. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's where we need institutional support for scientists, whether that's, you know, every science lab should have funding to have a you know communications professional or a, you know a student who could do some, you know, communications for the lab. I mean I think there's ways to incorporate this into our grants, into what we do, but it's going to take some structural changes too. I think that's a great idea. I think it would be so good if it was mandated that in the same way that you have someone that manages your supplies and pipette tips and Eppendorf's and all of that, that or maybe that you have someone who's also responsible for uh, maintaining like good lines of communication about the research output of, of that lab. I mean, maybe it, even for a whole department, but it'd be good if that person was sort of quite woven into the fabric of the lab so they understood the scientists and how the research was happening and could give a good account of that because I think yeah I think you're right the scientists are stretched right now and you're going to get bad research if it's not if then if we don't figure out ways to manage the load of expectation that there is is on them one thing and this is kind of like a little bit of a hot but kind of related I want to finish up by talking a little bit about women in science because it's something that I think about a lot and women in science you've got all of these things that you're trying to do plus maybe also extra responsibilities around childcare, and you know I don't want to go too much into like women versus men childcare. but what do you think um what do you think stops women from progressing too far down the like tenure track or why, why why are women so still so underrepresented at the higher levels in terms of academics yeah, this is a really sticky problem. And I wrote about some of this in, I wrote a really a, a blog post on my own blog on From the Lab Bench about being female in science. And it's gotten um, a lot of views and a lot of really good uh, feedback from, from women in science talking about how those things affect them. And it's really about kind of like microaggressions, the fact that there's not, today there's not explicit things that say, you know, you can't be a scientist to, to tell these young women that science isn't for them or that, I mean, there's stories sometimes, but it's largely not very external, like things we can really grab a hold of um, in terms of, you know, of, um, of, yeah, I guess discrimination, but it almost makes it harder because you can't, like those things are, you know, people know that we, they don't, we can't have explicit kind of, uh, harassment and, and discrimination, but then there's all kinds of things that come in that 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 don't get the attention, like um, just small things that are said in the workplace or structural things that don't allow women to, um, to, yeah, take enough time off that they need and that kind of hurts them when it comes to getting tenure when it's at a short window when they might be having, trying to have families. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, there's, Things that and it, it, the problem is that it's all the way along. So um, in some fields, there's less women going into science, and then if they do go into it, there's discrimination that happens along the way. That um, that kind of at each stage, especially up to the leadership, uh, women and women get uh, less and less well represented. And so especially at the leadership level, because it's really problematic because if you don't have these women leaders advocating for to help women get along that pathway, like along the pipeline, um, it really breaks down. So I think we, you know, we need more women in leadership positions in science so that we can change some of the policies that that might we don't realize are holding women back. Um, 
because it's not giving them the things they need in their early careers to kind of make it all the way through into leadership positions. Mm. One thing that you've said throughout the podcast is like really striking that people don't see scientists as warm. Do you think if there were more female scientists that that might shift a little bit? Because I, you know, I don't want to like go too much into stereotypes, but women stereotypically are like really good, better communicators and warmer or maternal or some of these things that might make science as a whole profession a little bit less like standoffish? Yeah, no, 100%. So I mean, that's one of the things we incorporated into our research is that we looked at female versus male scientists. Hmm. And female scientists in these self-portraits were by far perceived as most warm and most influenced stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. And the, I mean, and the, the, but there's a bunch of problems there, even when it comes to, even if women are equally represented in some field of science, maybe we say, you know, undergraduate biology students. Yeah, that's a classical example. Isn't it? <laughs> um, there's still, you know, the leadership still is not, it doesn't go all the way up to, let's say, academic leaders in the institution. Um, but even then, like their representation in the media. So even if there's, even if there were equal, you know, numbers of women in science right now, um, they're not as well represented in the media. They're not quoted as often. They're not, um, they're not as visible. And so that's a problem too, when that comes to that, uh, trust in scientists. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. Well, I mean, hopefully people like you and me, like getting out there and like, chatting to one another and like doing good blog posts and good podcasts so hopefully people will kind of continue to see more and more women doing out there doing really good scientists and hopefully that will feed back into the younger generation and people you know young women will be inspired to to get into science and and stay in science and and maybe if people felt like they could make a difference in science I think it was funny at the very start I think you were saying that you were interested in doing medicine for a period of time and I actually started doing medicine myself and I think what's attractive about medicine is people want to make a difference and so I think as science communication gets better and as as there are more women in science young women but also young people generally will see that you can make a difference in science and it's not just being up in this little ivory tower like pipetting away and like working out kind of abstract things like if there's clear paths from lab bench to translation in some way then maybe more and more people will be inspired to like get into and stay in science and you know make it and then the communication piece just making it more accessible and will be like a smoother pipeline yeah yeah i know for the article i wrote about these kind of microaggressions that women in science experience i mean one of the things i talked to quite a few grad students who talked about joining a specific lab not just because the pi the the professor in their lab was a woman but because she shared her kind of work-life balance she Mm. shared what it's like to you know leave every day to you know by 3 p.m to get her kids or you know and she shared the struggles and 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 how she got to work-life balance and to these young female students that was super important to them they wanted to join this lab because um i mean i think most young women i mean we realize that like these women who are superstars and they just seem to like they're all career driven and they're you know just doing amazing things they're not necessarily the most um counter stereotypical examples. They're not necessarily the people that really inspire us. Sometimes that can actually be intimidating. Um, but then as women, we feel this need to, you know, like present ourselves as like, it's easy for us. And we're, you know, we are superstars and we have it all figured out. I think, you know, admitting the struggles there actually is more inspiring to young women that like, Hey, look, I don't have to be a genius. I can have a family, I can do all these things and still be a scientist. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's almost like, um, I don't know whether you've heard of the imposter syndrome where people kind of are like, oh, I'm just like putting up this front, but I'm not really that competent or, but everyone on the outside is sort of just seeing the front and it's sort of this circle that perpetuates where you kind of need to achieve to prove to yourself that you're not an imposter and then you get there and then you, there's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I think that women are particularly susceptible to this like circle of feeling like an imposter and I think having more accessible and honest role models or having being able to have those conversations where you can take your guard down and be like, hey, you know, like I worked really hard to get here and it's not all been plain sailing. And there are some days where I have like 10 plates and then they all come crashing to the floor. Like that kind of honesty um, and humanity will definitely be an important part of convincing people to trust in themselves and um, you know, commit to, to a career path that can kind of seem maybe a little bit less certain and laid out for them than, than others. 
But it sounds like you have all of this like really great info on your blog. So um, as we're wrapping up, can you just tell listeners where to find you if they want to read some more about what you've been up to? Yeah. So on the science communication side, um, I have a blog called From the Lab Bench Um, because I went from the lab bench to communication. Um, And that is where you can find all of my blogging around science communication. And then now, but nowadays I'm blogging mostly at lifeapps.io. That's where I do all the blogging around fasting and metabolism and all kinds of science stuff gonna finish up now thank you so much for giving us your time I could have talked to you for like at least another couple of hours and (laughs) hopefully hopefully we'll be in touch more as you're like bringing out these exciting um, like telemedicine apps that's really fascinating so have a lovely afternoon speak to you again thank you thanks so much for tuning in this week everyone if you want to learn more about hvmn and our offerings visit www.hvmn.com forward slash pod also by writing a review on our itunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com we'll hook you up with 15 dollars worth of hvmn store credit our last shout out goes to our listener survey which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes that you find most valuable so visit go.hvmn.com forward slash podcast survey for that it'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an hvmn ketone giveaway so it's well worth the time until next time study smart train hard and live well